listening to The Gender Rebels. I'm Kathleen, a cis woman and ally. And I'm Faith, a trans woman. Gender Rebels is a question and answer podcast that explores life outside the gender binary. A big thanks to our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to support the show, go to patreon.com slash gender rebels. Hey, Faith, I got a question. Yeah, what's your question? What's a superior method of delivering HRT? Would it be the pill, the patch, or the shots? You know, actually... Truth be told, our legal team has told me that I am no longer allowed to give out medical advice <laughs> on this show or ever. Okay, okay. I'm actually not even allowed near hospitals. Oh, uh, no, that was why the cops came that <laughs> yeah. day. Okay. Actually, yeah, I don't know anything about how what works better. I take pills myself. Yeah. But I know other people who get injections, they get patches. There's mm-hmm. yeah. a gel for trans men. Wow. I th- Luckily, we have an endocrinologist on the show today. Oh my gosh. That's Hello. Awesome. <laughs> Hello. For everyone's safety and anonymity, we'll be referring to our guest today as Dr. HD because he has an excellent blog, HD Hormones Demystified. There's a link down below. Please check it out. It's really, really good. Thank you for joining us today. Yes, thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. We are very eager to delve into your vast knowledge of the endocrine system. First of all, actually, I'm sort of curious, what made you decide endocrinology? Well, initially, it was born out of really disliking general internal medicine. So it was more what I didn't want to do with my life. Which is just Uh, as good a reason to choose something. Yeah. (laughs) You know, for, for anyone who's gone through medical training, they they definitely get the sense as they progress what resonates and what doesn't resonate. And there was an awful lot about my medical training that was not resonating for me. Mm, So I I wound up going into general medicine as a residency just Mm -hmm. to to get that training and then sort of figure it out from there. And Mm -hmm. uh, that's what I learned during my general medicine residency is that I did not want to do that for the rest of my life. So then I I thought, what else might I want to do? And initially, I thought diabetes was very interesting and uh, that drew me into into endocrinology, I think, because it was very mathematical and playing with blood sugars and numbers and concrete. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you can wrap your mind around that. But uh, ultimately... I, I I grew to dislike taking care of diabetes very much. So now I, <laughs> I I am actually an endocrinologist, not because of diabetes, but in spite of diabetes. Spite diabetes. <laughs> I have I have found uh, other areas within endocrinology that I really enjoy, and uh, transgender care has become a pretty substantial part of my practice. Huh, and interesting. And I, I do a few other a few other things huh. as well, but I don't do as much diabetes anymore. Okay, I mean that's got a hard to avoid. There's so many diabetics out there, right? That's true. It is hard to avoid. Yes, uh, and probably a few what, trans diabetics too. One or two. One or two. Yeah, least. actually, yes. Yeah, oh, I do like, take huh. care of some people for both for both gender care and diabetes. But yeah, the uh, there are plenty of other endocrinologists who do diabetes really well. So, so people have started to seek me out for some of the other things that are maybe not done as well by all endocrinologists. Okay. Cool. So are your like thyroid stuff, adrenal stuff, what else? Yeah, I do a lot of thyroid care. Uh, Mm. Thyroid cancer is is a huge part of my practice. Yeah. So thyroid care and and transgender care would probably be the two biggest parts now. That's That's great. great. Cool. That's great. And I should say to our listeners, Dr. HD has an excellent post in his blog of why transgender patients are my favorite. Link down below. I urge you to check it out. Yes. So actually, Dr. HD, let's 
start with that first question that Kath asked. I know there's there's pills when it comes to HRT for trans people, trans women at least, is what I generally know more about. Mm. Uh, there's pills, injections, patches, maybe a gel. Yeah. Was what's, I right about that gel? I feel like I read about that somewhere. You were, you were right. Yes. Oh, cool. So what's yes. what's the difference kind of between these and for people who don't know about them but are maybe going to an endo to get some information, what's sort of what should a beginner know? What should a more advanced person know? Yeah, good good question. So I would say the first branch point there would be, do you want to take something orally or do you want to avoid the oral route? And when it comes to taking estrogen, a lot of times it's better to avoid the oral route if you can. And really? that would mean huh. using patches or injections or some other transdermal thing like the, the gel or the spray or something like that. And the reason for that is that transdermal estrogen or injectable estrogen or basically any estrogen that's not having to go through the GI tract is potentially going to be safer when it comes to certain risks. And those risks are the risk of blood clots, so those deep venous blood clots uh, called DVT. Mm. Uh, those are the ones that can develop in the legs, and there is a higher risk of that with oral estrogen than there is with non-oral estrogen. Really interesting. And, and then there's also a higher risk of the lipid panels, so the triglycerides in particular, going up pretty high on oral estrogen. And having really high triglycerides is not a good idea for several reasons, including cardiovascular risk and uh, risk of pancreatitis and things like that. But if you if you can go non-oral, it's it's got the potential to be safer. Now, the magnitude of that safety benefit right. may not be huge in someone who's young and otherwise really healthy. Mm -hmm. So I don't want people to get all freaked out and think, you know, I, I can't do pills and I'm going to have to do injections and I hate needles and, mm, you know, yeah. the, the patches irritate my skin. Uh, you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's not, it's not mission critical. It's just <laughs> something that, that I would prefer when, when we have the option. One way to get around that though, as far as using the pills in a pseudo non-oral way would be to take the pills and let just let them dissolve under the tongue. Oh, uh, oh I've heard that. Yeah, like so it's a mint flavor one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It would be nice if there was. Um, so the, <laughs> the the oral estradiol does dissolve pretty well under the tongue, huh. and it is. I will admit there there's quite a bit of hand waving there because mm. none of us know. And when I say us, I mean you know in the medical community, we sure. really don't know if sublingual estradiol and getting that direct into the bloodstream absorption from under the tongue is going to be that much safer than just swallowing the pill and let it go through the GI tract and get metabolized through the liver, which is mm. what ends up causing the potential problems is the liver. Oh, okay. But, and also presumably if you let something dissolve under the tongue, some of it's going to trickle down the back of your throat and you're going to wind up absorbing that through the GI tract. So who knows how much of it is really being absorbed under the tongue. So, and, and just going so through. could you snort it? Could you snort it? Uh, you could maybe, <laughs> um, but I just for the record well, and for your legal not team. That. Uh, okay. Yeah, I'm not recommending that anyone. Yeah. Uh, anyone do that I, when I'm at home. I, I had heard like the sublingual. Idea. I had heard that like um, letting it dissolve under your tongue could potentially be bad for your teeth. Now you're not a dentist, but have you heard that? That's interesting. I have not heard that. Uh, okay. I don't know. I don't know why it would be if you let it dissolve and then you you. If there is something in there that could be bad for the enamel or something, if yeah. you just drink 
some some water afterwards. It doesn't seem like it would be that big a deal, but yes, I'm not a dentist, so not sure well, about that. That'll be our next episode. That, yeah, we'll have a dentist on. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Um, okay, that's very. And then with like, the gels or the patches, they're about the same as the pills. What do you think? You know, I, I would say that with the patches, when they work, I like them. But mm. most transgender women have to take it, or have to use at least two patches at a time oh. to get hmm. adequate dose because it only goes up so high. Um, you know, the the max dose on these patches is. Uh, zero point one, and I'll I'll leave the the units of measurement off for now. But sure. you know, I find that that most people need to to take at least two, and that means that they're starting to have these bigger, bulkier things on, and mm. some people wind up with rashes from the adhesive. Sure. And okay. It's so if if it works, great, but oftentimes it doesn't work out so well. So I find that people usually like if we're going non-oral, they usually mm. like the injections. I do have um, one or two people who use the spray uh, on the skin and like that. Huh, um, interesting. I didn't know there was a spray. Yeah, wow, I didn't even know awesome. that. The spray, um, I believe, is called Eva Mist, E-V-A Mist. And um, I have, I, I can think of at least one person off the top of my head who uses it and likes it. Hmm. But I, I don't tend to prescribe it a lot. Maybe it's just because... I haven't had that many people really come in asking for it. I see. Okay. Yeah. And injections, is that something where it's once a month? Is this once a day? How does that? The injections are yeah. done either weekly or every other week, depending okay. on preference and which preparation, because there, there are a couple of different preparations of estradiol mm-hmm. injections. If you do it weekly, it's a little smoother because mm-hmm. you're using basically half the dose weekly that you would be using if you were doing it every other week. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you, you have a, a higher peak and a lower, well, not necessarily a lower trough, but you have, you do have a higher peak when you do it every other week. Whereas if okay. you do it, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a I'm, I'm using my hands here, which makes no sense. <laughs> you have a s- smoother sine wave type mm-hmm. of appearance. Yeah. Excellent. Oh, okay. Sense. Yeah. So then, like, what are the symptoms people report when it's not the trough exactly, but like the opposite of the peak? Uh, yeah. So if, if they're having too much of a of a delta there, too much of a change between yeah. uh, a lot, a lot. Most of the time, it's mood. A lot of mood okay. issues. Okay. Yeah. So if people are saying, you know, I'm feeling really uh, depressed or anxious, uh, or I feel like my dysphoria is kicking up in yeah. the three days mm. before. My- injection you know that's kind of what i hear that that sounds okay yeah that's kind of what i would expect i guess mm-hmm. yeah all right and then you had mentioned this is really interesting the the change from intramuscular to uh i forget what the opposite was of intramuscular oh, uh, subcutaneous. subcutaneous yeah so for estradiol i uh i haven't seen any studies on that yet although i haven't looked as hard mm. um so i'm gonna have to check that one out because i would think it would be possible to do subcutaneously but for for uh, transgender men mm-hmm. who are using intramuscular testosterone right now i think it's pretty exciting that there was a really nice study done specifically in that population which i will say is is actually great because most of the studies 
for transgender patients uh, are well there aren't that that many great studies usually yeah. all the all the data that we talk about when we talk about trying to say you know what are your risks of hormone therapy and all that the the studies are all done on uh, cisgender people and we're mm. extrapolating the data okay. which is is not great oh, so th this study uh, was uh, in the journal of clinical endocrinology and metabolism which is one of our best endocrine journals it was back in July mm. and basically looked at uh, female to male transgender patients, and they gave some of them uh, subcutaneous testosterone and some of them intramuscular testosterone. Uh, they all did it on a weekly basis, mm -hmm. and they got the same levels and the same effect, and everyone felt great. But of course, there was a universal preference for subcutaneous yeah. injections, way less painful exactly. and much less likely to cause bruising and hitting a nerve and all that stuff that I typically happens. Thought of hitting I, am. A nerve. Yeah. I just thought oh, of gosh. how much the flu shot hurts and I don't want to do that every week. And that's the only intramuscular injection I'm really I got one with. that was I got one that was it might have been tetanus In a, that hurt muscle. for like two weeks. Oh wow. Yeah, yeah that that's, one was, that's the one. <laughs> yeah. That's oh that's okay. This this yeah. is good news. Yay for uh -huh. our trans men listeners. How awesome. Hopefully this will be a treatment. Yeah. So actually in your practice you mentioned originally you were doing other endocrinology with other patients and that you sort of switched to doing um much more transgender care. What was it like meeting that first patient who came to you and said, I'd like to get on uh, hormones because I'm I'm transgender because I know there's a lot of our listeners out there who aren't living in a big city mm -hmm. you know they may be going to a doctor who is unfamiliar so what was it like as a doctor having that first patient that you were kind of unfamiliar with mm, that that's a really good question and that actually takes me back to mm. my internal medicine residency when I was rotating through the endocrinologist okay. clinic and there was there was one endocrinologist in particular who was the the gender care guru of mm. the region um so i had never had any exposure prior to then so i was uh completely uncomfortable didn't know uh what words to use sure. um, what questions to ask how detailed to get, how personal I could get mm -hmm. uh, in the questions. I mean, it was I was very self-conscious. And, um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I'm pretty sure that I made the patient completely uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, everything worse. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so I, I, I'm sure it wasn't a good experience for, for either one of us. So if we extrapolate that to <laughs> what you're, you're asking, uh, if someone lives in the middle of nowhere mm -hmm. and um, – and is going to a, a general doc, or maybe they're they're lucky enough to go to an endocrinologist, but one who has not been trained uh, to do transgender care, which is probably most endocrinologists mm. are not getting that training currently. Mm. Um, you know what do, what do they do? And uh, uh, that's uh, that's a great question. I, I think if if they're meeting with a doctor who just doesn't have the knowledge base. Mm -hmm then, you know, in order to really do it correctly and safely um, and to be confident that they're actually getting appropriate care, they're, they're going to need to establish with a doc who knows what he or she is doing. Sure. Uh, that's, okay. that's, just, yeah. that's just sort of unavoidable. Mm. How to do that? Um, so I have people who come to see me from, I would say, as far as about four or five hours away. 
Mm. And it's uh, it's a function of exactly what you said. There's just not a lot of uh, a lot of docs who do yeah. it. So um, what I do for these folks is I try to manage them mostly remotely. So they come to see me uh, that first time, and we kind of go through all of the you know just kind of lay the groundwork. Sure. And um, you know we get the baseline labs and all that kind of stuff, and then uh, I I try to just let them do their follow-up lab work closer to home Mm -hmm. and then they'll send me the results and um, you know we'll try to do some we have a ability to do secure email where I work so it's through the the uh, electronic medical record Um, so I you know the the challenge with that is you know I can't do too much of that because I don't have time blocked on my schedule to Ooh. to do this and I can't uh quite frankly get paid for it oh, uh, and okay, in yeah. my group um you know the bottom line right now is extraordinarily important mm. uh because of the the crunch in medical care which is a whole other issue so mm. um what I would recommend that people do is they if they can find someone who is part of a a larger healthcare system. Many of the larger systems now, particularly the self-contained systems, you know, where it's mm-hmm. a, it's a medical care, it's like a, a health maintenance organization, an HMO, like where they have already figured out how to uh, actually set up um, Skype visits, mm. email visits, and things like that that they can actually bill for because then it's built into the system. Okay. So that that would be one way to do it. I think so. These larger companies or organizations that have figured that out, um, they can all, people can also try to then seek out maybe someone who's part of a really small uh, clinic that, you know, is maybe just a couple of people because mm-hmm. those folks may have also figured out how to be a little bit more nimble. But I think uh-huh. the in-between organizations like mine um, that are not ginormous but mm-hmm. are definitely not small, uh, you know, we haven't figured it out, and it, you know, it's it's very difficult unless you find someone like like me who's just kind of willing to 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 do it on the fly for a few people here and there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I don't think that's going to be the norm. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't seem like it can be sustained. No. Also, like if if you're saying you're not really even getting paid for it, then I could see a lot of doctors wanting to do this, but just not. Being able to well, do yeah, this. especially if they've got administrators breathing mm-hmm. down their throat, you know, yeah, yeah. I wonder yeah, if that's... it's possible, like someone could, you know, do their four or five hour drive to see you, and then have you consult with the closest endocrinologist and just sort of advise that person. Like, is that even a thing? Yeah. So I have one person who I've um, kind of talked to their primary and mm-hmm. their primary doc and said, you know, listen, can you handle yeah. This okay. little piece and this little piece. And then I'll just see the person once a year. So once a year they'll you know, they'll take the four or five hour drive and see mm-hmm. me. Um and, and that that kind of works. Okay. Um and, and the most a lot of this actually can be done well, it could easily be done via uh via a Skype video chat yeah. uh or even just phone calls and and that's why um I I really do think that a, a an organization that is an HMO that has an endocrinologist is probably going to be the best because the HMOs um, keep everything internally, like they all of their billing and everything. They're not billing any outside organizations. Mm-hmm. They just 
they, they collect money from their members and then they figure out how they're going to spend that money. So, um, so they can pretty much do whatever they want. So uh, in, in that sense, I think an HMO is actually a, a good place to seek out care. Okay. Interesting. Great. Okay. That's good to know. Yeah. Cause we hear from a lot of people who just don't have anyone who knows anything around. Yeah. Them Cause if you're not in New York or if you're not in a big city or a college town, even maybe yeah, the major medical tricky. center, but yeah, it, there's a lot of people who aren't, don't have yeah. the resources. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Thanks for listening, everyone. Dr. HD had so much good information. We split the episode into two parts. But don't worry, both parts will be completely understandable if you only listen to one. Remember, while Dr. HD may be a doctor, he is not your doctor. And while we're at it, as far as you're concerned, he's an anonymous blogger who could be spouting utter nonsense. It would be crazy to put unquestioning faith into anything he says, so don't do it. He gives no warranty as to the accuracy of the information he presents, and then he is not liable for any loss you suffer as a result of reliance on this information. Dr. HD's blog and guest spot on our podcast is for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice, and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of information on this podcast or materials linked from this podcast is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Listeners should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions. Thanks for listening, everybody. All right. Thank Bye. you so much. Bye. If you've enjoyed this episode and want to help us keep making more great content, go to patreon.com forward slash gender rebels. We have many different levels of support and lots of great rewards, including drinks with the gender rebels at Stonewall. Please leave a five star review on iTunes. That makes it easier for other people to find us and send your questions to questions at gender or find us on Twitter at the gender rebels. Music for the gender rebels is by Jasper the Colossal. Follow the link down below or download them on iTunes today. And for all our episodes, visit genderrebels.com. The Gender Rebels is a comeback sync production copyright 2017, all rights reserved. And to all you gender rebels out there, keep rebelling. Bye. Bye.